Hi there, welcome to Active Intelligence. I'm Aaron Ironside. I hope you'll spend the next half an hour or so with me as we take a look at some social issues from a variety of perspectives. And today we should say, Talofalava, as we take a look at the Dawn Raids apology that was some near 50 years in the making and engage some active intelligence. On today's episode, I catch up with Pastor Stephen Mattia. He's a church leader, a community leader, and a man who in a sense embodies the new reality for many Pacific Island people, given that he is of mixed ethnicity himself, a Samoan dad and a Palangi mum, spent a good chunk of his childhood in Samoa, education here in New Zealand, and now trying to forge the way for many uh, Pacific Island people uh, in this country. He embodies many of the challenges a generation on from the dawn raids. Because it's a generation on, many of us don't really remember. We know the phrase, some of us are more familiar with dawn raid as a music company than a dark chapter of Kiwi history. So let's go back in the time machine to the early 1970s, where it was deemed the opportunity to allow uh, Pacific Island people, particularly Samoan people and Tongans for that matter, to come to New Zealand to deal with the labour shortage that we have. We needed unskilled labour or so it appeared. Well, it wasn't long before those jobs disappeared and many of those Pacific people who didn't have any other skills were relegated to the unemployment lines. And we became familiar with this idea of the overstayer, the person who'd come by invitation but had not yet completed all of the official immigration processes and was now technically staying in the country illegally. And the dark chapter included, of course, police deciding that they could just go and visit Pacific Island families at dawn to see who was there, to see if they could catch somebody being an overstayer and deport them. It was a dark time. And as the Polynesian Panthers explain, a time that reminded them of some pretty dark chapters in history. Well, I think horrific for the children and for the parents um, to be attacked like that at that time of the morning, at that time of the night, um, with no warning. It, I, I would liken it to the, um, what happened to the Jewish people in the Nazi era. Wow. Yeah, it's that, it's like that. Um, so here in New Zealand, and we're living like that, um, it reminds me also of what it would be like in South Africa during the apartheid era, because we've seen a lot of the um, coverage you know, from, from what happened there. And, and, and it, is, it is an absolute equivalent with apartheid, yes. because the Pacifica people were directly being targeted yes. in, way this, in ways that other communities were because yes. of race, mm. right? Yes. Pro -pro Professor, and I, mm. I, 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 you know, I've been obsessed with the Dawn Raids. It wasn't my lived experience, but as a, as a, as a witness to history, mm. right. I never endured them. But we were told back in, when was this happening, 74, 75, yes. predominantly, that, 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 that these were targeted, that we knew who we were looking for, that these were absolutely overstays, that there were warrants, but in fact they weren't, were they? I mean, this was just random, right? Mm. Mm. I think um, the random checks which accompanied the Dawn Raids were probably as insidious as the Dawn Raids in terms of um, 
pe brown people, Pacific people, being suspects as soon as they walk out the door. And, 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 and because a Pākehā police officer can tell the difference no. between a Pacifica person and a Māori person, we were asking Māori people to prove that they had the right to be here yes. too. Right. And yeah. at the time, one of the politicians, what did he do? He compared us to cows. I can tell the difference from a Frisian cow from a Jersey, a Jersey. Jersey cow. And That's, so. That was the thinking at the time of, of Pacific people. I imagine it's very hard for many of us to imagine that the dawn raids could be equated with the Holocaust or with apartheid. But then again, that probably just reminds us we've never been on the wrong end of a racial injustice. We've never felt like we were targeted just for the colour of our skin, just for our ethnicity, uh, and that there was some evil intent behind it all to kick us out of the country. That would have been a very scary experience. And of course, uh, all the worse for those who had nothing to hide, no reason to be under such scrutiny uh, by the police and so for them very much feeling like this was just being uh, racially profiled and targeted by the police. No wonder that Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern and her government believe that it's time to make a formal apology for all that went on during that time. Uh, words in a sense are a little cheap but they are also a start and the Prime Minister seemed very genuine. I stand on behalf of the New Zealand Government to offer a formal and unreserved apology to Pacific communities for the discriminatory implementation of the immigration laws of the 1970s that led to the events of the Dawn Raids. The Government expresses its sorrow remorse and regret that the dawn raids and random police checks occurred and that these actions were ever considered appropriate. Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern doing in a sense what she does best, which is the public facing stuff with the camera in front of her. Not to suggest that she wasn't genuine in her apology. I'm sure that she absolutely was. After all, a generation on, many of us are embarrassed about what happened. We are ashamed. It is a, a blight in the history books. We don't really want to acknowledge that it even happened. And, and are apologies enough? Do they go far enough? Well, at least some who were in attendance felt like it was a really good start. As a generation, we are so blessed to be able to live in this time where we can witness it live. I think um, generational curses and trauma has does affect us even though we don't see it directly, but even hearing stories of my uncle when they first moved to New Zealand and how they didn't know that um, you know things were done wrong to them. They just kind of accepted it. Um, it was hard for me to hear as a young Tongan. So I think it's just a blessing that we get to be here to witness it and um, be part of the healing. I'll be interested to see if the public apology is the end of this issue or perhaps it's the beginnings. Perhaps there'll be some conversations around uh, reparations or some other measures to really follow through on this apology. But it is a good thing. It's the right thing to happen because frankly, it should never have happened. Polynesian people who were invited to this country to help our workforce should not have been targeted in uh, such a, an aggressive and offensive way. There were other ways to deal with this uh, process and of course what's happened is that a generation of Kiwis developed a certain bitterness, a certain racial attitude towards Polynesian people and the good news is that attitude is shifting but like all these things perhaps too slow for some. 
I caught up with Pastor Stephen Mataya, born to a Palangi mum and a Samoan dad, raised in the islands, educated here, and of an age that meant that the dawn raids fairly much didn't cross his radar until he was at university. I didn't actually come across the the dawn raids as a, as a thing until I came to university here. Uh, I, when that was happening, um, I was I was in Samoa and I was really young, so I didn't. Um, I, I, I that wasn't part of of my psyche. That wasn't part of a conversation, uh, even in Samoa. Um, but definitely, there was still, and there still to this day is this whole idea of uh, New Zealand is the place to go. It's uh, we can you can earn a better living for your yourself, for your kids, for your ainga, uh, and um, and people still to this day. Um, they they want to come here. Uh, nowadays, it's often through the RSC workers, the seasonal um, the seasonal workers. Uh, but there's still there's the, the since the treaty of friendship we have what in Samoa they call it the city or the it's like the lottery. So you, you put your name in the hat and a thousand Samoans every year um, are able to come in and be a given permanent resident status. So that concept that. Uh, New Zealand's the place of land of milk and honey. Uh, we got to get there. It's a, it's a place where we can have a better future for our kids. That's still in, in the in the in the psyche of Samoan people and Pacific people too. Well, of course, we now realise that was a double-edged sword. On the one hand, there was some work, not as much work as was being promised, because automation meant that the unskilled work of the factory worker was not in the kind of demand that we thought. Uh, And, of course, uh, what also came with it was the fact that whilst businesses might have thought they could use an extra set of hands, culturally, it wasn't something that was embraced. I mean, I know growing up that, for example, one of the terrible sort of nicknames a Polynesian person might endure was being called a fob, fresh off the boat. When I say fob, what what sort of feeling comes up in you when you hear that sort of dismissive nickname? Um, Well, nothing from you, mate, because I know you. You know, so uh, when when we hear these kind of terms, like it depends on two things. It depends uh, on the context in which is given and who's giving it, uh, because Pacific people, Samoans, and I can I can only speak more uh, truthfully about the Samoan experience. Um, we give each other that sort of stuff all the time, and it's acceptable for us to call each ourselves that. It's kind of we can laugh at, at ourselves, we can say that about ourselves, but no one else better say that to us, or there could be trouble. Uh, but like I say, between you and me, not a lot. If if, if a random person called me that, um, then I would take offence to it, hundred uh, percent. But they're not likely to, because I. I I get mistaken more for Māori, if I'm honest, than, than for being Samoan or a Pacific person. So, yeah, it depends. It depends in the context. It depends who's saying it. Um, yeah, and all that sort of thing. Do you think that Samoan-born Polynesian people feel welcome here? By and large, yes. Um, by and large, I think we we call this home, mate. You know, um, we've been in the 2018 census. There's almost 50 percent, maybe even more, that have been here for 40 years or longer, or 20 years or longer, long periods of time. So, the majority of Pacific peoples have been here, second, third generations now we're into. So, this is definitely home uh, for many, many Samoan people. And often, even if they've, they've come and lived here, they've gone back to the islands, whether that be Samoan Tong, but they come back and forth now. So, there's a kind of a dual home. Um, 
the, uh, your home island um, is always kind of a romanticized that's the homeland uh, even for people uh, who were born here that never been I was talking with one of my second cousins the other day he's never been never been um, and so there's those sort of people identify truly as Samoan um, and would see Samoan as the homeland even though they've never been yet New Zealand still is home and by and large I would say feel accepted yeah well, you've now referenced, of course, this change that now we have the sons and daughters, the grandsons and granddaughters yeah. of those original workers from the 70s and 80s who came into the country. And of course, they now feel Kiwi and rightly so, uh, but yeah. also have this strong pullback uh, towards Samoa. But with that comes this kind of grey space in between. My brother, uh, he is uh, has a wonderful life with the Samoan girl and the th- uh, three uh, beautiful children that they have together uh, and one of the challenges I know though is that there are still some expectations that come their way from the Samoan side of the family whether those be some financial obligations cultural obligations and there is now this tension about how much of being Samoan do I want to keep going and and which rules do I want to keep living under tell me about some of those uh, tensions what might be some of the expectations that a Kiwi born Samoan might be living under there's a bunch the most obvious one usually um, revolves around money Um, sometimes it's money and the church together sometimes it's just the church Uh, but money's I mean you you know in any kind of marriage finance is is one of the biggest sticking points even when you're both from the same sort of cultural uh, or view the same cultural lens Um, but when you have different expectations in in a mixed marriage around the issue of finances it can get a little tricky I would say Um, in in my early years I I could confidently say I was a little bit hesitant to give money to to what we call whalawilawe and whalawilawe encompasses weddings uh, funerals, 21sts, uh, bestowing of chiefly titles. Uh, so, you know, the expectation is uh, as a Inga, as a family, you give to support uh, your family. You, you put your money together and you go as a family to support whatever that Fai Love is. Um, but the more I um, understood, I'm married to a beautiful Samoan woman, and the more I understood from her perspective, um, so our kids then are three quarters Samoan, the more I actually thought, you know, this. This, there's a lot of beauty in, in the culture um, and there's a lot of things that, that we need to hold on to, that we can't let go of um, but that we still have to do thoughtfully you know um, in the, around the issue of money we've always now taken the position we, we'll give what we can afford um, and but we'll give cheerfully and we'll support with our time but there's a point where you can't give any more because it will damage your family so those are the things we have to juggle um, the expectations from parents and grandparents uh, around the issues of money expectations from the church or other cultural maybe it's village village here village in Samoa how do we balance that um, the, the the desire for, or the request for money seemingly never end but you have to as a as a New Zealand born Pacific person or a Samoan born who's now here uh, you have to decide that for yourself um, you have to negotiate that with yourself your 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 family um, your elders and, and come to some sort of um, ground where everyone can be happy if that's possible <laughs> 
You've talked about some of the the beautiful parts of Samoan culture. One of the ideas, because I went to a high school that was 65% Samoan, was this idea of (laughs) collective ownership as opposed to personal ownership. And of course, the example that you would hear on the playground all the time would be someone saying, where are my football boots? And of course, they've been exchanged around three sets of cousins and who knows Who's got them now? And yeah. and for a parling, of course, we couldn't understand that. It was like, no, but but the boots are mine. But the very clear attitude was, no, no, the boots are ours. They belong to the to the Ienga, to the family. And yeah. and whoever needs to use them gets to use them sort of idea. It's quite yeah. a lovely idea at the one uh, yeah. level, but of course it bumps into the deeply individual mindset of the Westerner. Yeah. No, that that's true. And a lot of that comes from, uh, you know, there's more usually in a Pacific house, uh, place of residence here in, in New Zealand, there's more than one generation. There's more than just, you know, you might have cousins or aunties also staying with you. So that's, that, that plays out on a daily basis. This whole, this is our stuff. Uh, but it's also, you know, your parents, my parents used to talk to me and say, Hey, your cousins need this. Is this okay? Um, and it's and it's, yeah, hundred percent. You know, share it. We'll do what we can. We're one ainga. Uh, we're we're one collective. But you know, there's always this. You know, I've heard uh, all my all my mates were were Samoan or Tongan. You know, in high school. So there is that kind of thing. Oh man, my cousin took. Can I can I borrow yours? And so it's ours as well. Even across friendships, where there's no bloodlines. It's like the bloodlines are invisible. They, we'll call them brown lines. Um, so what's mine is my brother's is is my mate from school is my it's, it's all ours it's our stuff but it does it does from time to time come into conflict with this whole individualistic mentality but um i ha- i had to do it all my friends had to do it um and by it i mean we get used to jumping in and out of cultural frames uh, when we go to school there's one particular frame that we know we can operate within when we get home there's certainly a different you know there's not a, a switch that we flick but maybe there's a mental thing we go okay this is now the home context um this is how i behave and, and, and this is what happens in this context and and for a lot of my friends you know when they forgot that they had moved from one context to the other and uh, they didn't behave in the, <laughs> the way they perhaps should have there, there, there would have been some issues but essentially um the young modern pacific person is good at figuring out okay what are the rules of, of this place what are the rules of that place and maybe rules sounds harsh but it's, it's way of being way of doing how do i be in this place in this context and how do i be over here so on the one hand of course it is really truthful to say new zealand is a richer place for the presence of the largest Samoan population in the world there's no doubt but let's talk about the dark side of that let's have the reality check sadly that Samoan population is mostly found in low socioeconomic communities where gangs and crime and the stuff that we're the least comfortable about is also happening what's that like to realize that part of the fruit of all of that life is greener here come to New Zealand have a better life and and actually it hasn't really proven to be that true for many people. Mm. Yeah, that's a tough one. Um, because it is it is getting better. If you track it back over time, Pacific people are, 
are more educated than they have been. Uh, there's a rise in, in levels one, two, three. Uh, there's more Pacific people getting a bachelor's level degree. There are more Pacific people moving into postgrad. There are slightly more Pacific people in professional uh, occupations. Uh, and that's always been a drive for me in my own vocation um, is, to, is to just get people to help them change their, their, where they are uh, economically. Uh, mostly through education, but yeah, the numbers are still blowing out at, at the wrong ends of, of all the of all the spectrum. So while there is um, increase, it's it's slow, it's steady, um, but it's still not good enough. Eh? Um, most of our people are still in the labourer sort of categories. Most of our people are still um, doing things that pay at the lower end of the scale. So. Um, it makes sense then that you know there are some who will always be drawn to 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 gangs there will be some that out of necessity might decide that look i just it's just easier to take than than to work uh which is unfortunate but that that's the reality of of a lot of things um a lot of our, our young people um they're still you know school in new zealand is still not um producing the kind of outcomes that myself as an educator would have liked uh, that's not for lack of trying that's not for lack of good teachers because there are there are plenty there who have a heart for pacific um so i think sometimes the pacific community has to has to hold the mirror up to themselves and say hey what are we doing for our young people what are we doing for in terms of education um how can we make that better and i, I lean towards education because that, that's my thing i've been in that space for uh 25 years so that for me that's that's the biggest way to affect change uh young pacific men especially although um even uh, some of our young pacific women are uh, the attraction of of the gangs is, is is still like it's a um it's a place where we can be this solidarity this unity we like we like this whole collective mind and 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 for a lot of Samoans, I will say, I'm not going to speak for Tongans. There is still, a, there's a lot of pride in, in who you are, and sometimes that pride can get a little bit combative. Uh, combative. Uh, we do like to think we are the toughest person on the street, or you know, all that sort of thing. We're very proud in that sense um, of who we are. So, if if I reference back to, uh, you know, if I called you a fob that you asked me in the beginning, if you're in a certain context like that, and you approach a certain young people, and you so that to them in a way that was hostile there would be trouble um but yeah it's there's there's no easy answer i know there's been some research done into uh, pacific youth culture and gangs i haven't read a lot of that myself but um a lot of that is borne out through you know this what are other opportunities are there um i didn't do so well at school how am i gonna feed my young family um yeah, and they've, yeah, it's a big subject, brother. <laughs> You've referenced identity there, that the gangs offer a sense of identity, and we, we know that oftentimes what was a big draw in the gangs from a cultural perspective was this ability to associate with African-American culture, that that became sort of almost quasi-adopted for a lot of Polynesian young men particularly. And now, of course, we, we know the value of identity. We, we're seeing that with our young Māori population, that the more they embrace uh, tikanga Māori, they're, they're feeling like, this is who I am. 
But now that we have this new problem of which, in a sense, you, you embody the, the mixed race Polynesian person who's got these different cultural forces trying to shape a sense of identity. How important is it in 2021 and beyond to keep cultivating that beautifully Samoan part of what it means to be a Polynesian person? Yeah. Yeah. Where I am now, uh, as you would know, for me, identity number one comes through Christ. So that's my, I, w- I will always end up there. Uh, culture is important. Um, it's part of who you are. It's part of what makes us unique and beautiful and, uh, and and one of God's creations. But at the end of the day, for me, it's it's my identity is, is that uh, I, I'm I'm a son of the of, of the living God. Um, so if if I, if I back out of that a bit and 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 think about our identity as Pacific people, it's you have to be in a place that you can talk about it. Um, a lot of it comes down to the family. Um, do you even how how connected is your family to to the culture? Um, and and it's more difficult if there's mixed races. You know, if if there's mixed islands, if it's Maori, um, Samoan. My 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 brother-in-law is is um, partner is a beautiful Tongan lady, and and you know, there's uh, when we have family dues, we we say we're the Tongans. Why are they late? You know, but they're they're, they're mixture. But it, we we we've embraced it, and and we love um, that part of our family. Um, one of my other brothers-in-law is married to a Cook Islander, so uh, we refer to them as the cookies. Why are the cookies late for our family lunch? But you know, that we've brought them in. Uh, we love them. We uh, and and our family is richer for it. Now, how they interact with the Cook Island side or the Tongan side is quite unique. And we often ask and jest, "What are you? Are you Samoan or are you Tongan? <laughs> you know, what are you? Are you?" And this is between islands. You know, what are you? Are you Samoan or Cook Island? And and we wait with bated breath for the answer. And of course, they're going to say Samoan because they're with the Samoan side of the family. <laughs> but, um, but it's it's a tension that we we're going to have to navigate because that's just the way Aotearoa is. That's just the way Auckland specifically is, and and Wellington and some of the, our other major cities is to is to try and keep both of them alive. Um, not have one dominate the other, but take the take the best out of both. And 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 my own personal leaning, and walk as a Cook Islander, as a Samoan, as a Samoan Cook Islander, and walk as a Christian. And, and with your cultures with you. Pastor Stephen Mattia reminding us that the issues, of course, are fairly complex as the world has changed so much over the last 50 years. For the Pacific community, the challenges are pretty obvious. And that is, we understand on the one hand, the desire to hold on to their culture. After all, you only have to look at the Māori community to realise what bad stuff happens when you lose your language and lose your culture and how helpful it can be to find those things again. So I don't think we should at all be grudge the Pacific people wanting to treasure and to hold on to their culture and in fact we might do well to try and learn something from that culture and uh, let it enrich our lives and of course now there are these Kiwi-born Polynesians who have a foot in both cultures and they're not sure how to navigate this space there's pressure pulling coming from both sides and we need to be very mindful uh, of that and in a sense give some more space for that process to continue on because, of course, another 
20 years from now, there'll be a third generation and hopefully it will have settled itself by then. But it's a difficult time for Pacific people. It's also a difficult time for white New Zealand, for Pākehā, Pālangi New Zealand, who hold on to this somewhat nostalgic view of the country as this white European country in the Pacific. But the reality is we're a Pacific Island nation. And in fact, as difficult as it is for some even to embrace biculturalism, we're going to have to embrace multiculturalism as well. And I haven't even talked about where the aging community fits in this equation. But I think we do need to expand our worldview, at least to include the Polynesian community, because after all, Auckland is the largest Samoan city in the world, has the biggest Samoan population. We are a Pacific Island country. We're in the South Pacific. We should embrace that. It's nothing to be embarrassed about or concerned about. It's a beautiful thing that means we are a very special gem in the Pacific because we have the best of both worlds. We're a modern Western first world country, but we're also a Pacific island. Hey friends, it's paradise. Let's just enjoy the slice of paradise that we get to live in and try and open our arms and our hearts to what other cultures have to offer us because I earnestly believe that they do enrich us if we let it. If we can let go of the idea that the way we think and the way we feel is the right way. Now, there are many right ways. And this is our chance to be enriched and just celebrate the beautiful gift that the Pacific people are to New Zealand to remind us where we are in the world and to help us really discover who we are. Remember, New Zealand is a young country. We're still finding our identity and perhaps it's time for us to open up that view of our identity to fully embrace not just the treaty, but also our Pacific identity. What do you think? Have you been enriched by the Pacific presence? What are the issues and challenges that you see? Please get in touch, activeintelligence.nz. You can subscribe and then all the episodes will arrive straight in your inbox. We'll see you next time on Active Intelligence.